Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter number 15. Revelation chapter number 15. Except in cases where politics have a direct impact on some moral or gospel issue. I have made it a practice to stay away from such things. However, I'm going to make an exception this morning. And I, I would just like to say publicly, and I think you will agree, that I hope that sometime over the course of the next several months, our good senators and representatives can find the moral fortitude to do something about this clock-changing insanity. <laughs> it's good to be with a sleepy congregation on Spring Forward Sunday. A special welcome to those of you who thought you were coming to the 9.30 service this morning. <laughs> Revelation chapter 15 is our text for the day. It continues where chapter 14 left off, celebrating the victory that we enjoy in Jesus. There seems to be a subtle distinction between the victory applied in Revelation 14 and the victory applied in Revelation 15. If there is a distinction to be made, this subtle distinction seems an appropriate way of expressing that. Revelation 14 seems to be about the victory enjoyed by those who die for their faith in Jesus. They suffer the martyr's death. Whereas Revelation 15 seems to have its emphasis on the victory that all who die in Christ enjoy together. Every born-again believer covered in the blood of Jesus, having repented of their sin and entrusted their soul to Christ, will enjoy on the last day the fullness of victory secured through the finished work of our Savior Jesus by his death on the cross and punctuated in his resurrection from that garden grave. We have seen before in our study in Revelation this exodus motif or the way John uses the, the model or the pattern for deliverance and salvation found in the book of Exodus to describe the experience of the Christian in the current context. Usually those are drawn from the initial stages of the Exodus. In other words, John will tend to use references to the judgments that are to come in parallel to the plagues that God brought against Israel in order to highlight the fact that it's through these acts of judgment that God is bringing us out, not out of Egyptian bondage, but out of our bondage to sin. In Revelation chapter 15, the images drawn from the book of Exodus are brought from the other end of that experience. In other words, it's not the beginning of their being called out of their Egyptian bondage, but the end of that wilderness wandering experience and the crossing over now the Jordan into the land that flows with milk and honey. The great promise of our passage is that after all of our wilderness wanderings are done, once God has shaped and sanctified by the work of his spirit, his spirit through the trials and travails of everyday experience, the sloughing off of rough edges performed by the work of God's Holy Spirit as we are brought into conformity with the image and likeness of his son Jesus, God will once more part the waters, bring us over into a land that flows with milk and honey. This is the promise of Revelation chapter 15. If you found your way there, join me in standing as we read the word of God together. The Bible says, beginning in verse 1, that I saw another great and awe-inspiring sign in heaven, 
Seven angels with the seven last plagues, for with them God's wrath will be completed. I also saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had won the victory over the beast, his image, and the number of his name were standing on the sea of glass with harps from God. They sang the song of God's servant Moses and the song of the Lamb. Great and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? Because you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you because your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked in the heavenly sanctuary. The tabernacle of testimony was opened. Out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, dressed in clean, bright linen, with gold sashes wrapped around their chests. One of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven gold bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The sanctuary was filled with smoke from God's glory and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his holy word you may be seated. God will bring us over. Israel was delivered from their experiences in Egypt in those great acts of judgment described as plagues in the book of Exodus. God brought them out. He brought them out to the Red Sea. This seemingly impassable sea stood before them. The plagues had for a season softened the heart of Pharaoh. He had, after all, let them go. But in time, his heart would harden once more. Pharaoh would raise an army and they would pursue the Israelites as far as the Red Sea. It seemed as though they were cornered. There was nowhere to go. Until in this great miracle, God would part the waters of the Red Sea and the people of Israel would pass over as on dry ground. They entered into this vast desert, a wilderness as it's described in the book of Exodus, where they began their journey toward the promised land. But for their rebellion, for their unbelief, for their disobedience, they were cursed to wander that wilderness for 40 years. In fact, it was told that only Joshua and Caleb of the living generation would be permitted to pass over into the land that God had promised for the unbelief of the existing generation. For 40 years, they experienced God's provision in the wilderness through hard times, difficulties, through hunger and thirst. God met their every need. He gave them daily bread. He was their source of provision. There were difficult days, no doubt. There were seasons of rebellion without question, but every step along the way, God was with the people of Israel. There came a time near the end of Moses' life when Joshua was to be commissioned. He was to take the mantle of Moses. He would be the leader that would lead the people of Israel to cross over once more. Joshua leads the people of Israel to the Jordan. And in a second water parting miracle, those waters are parted. And the people of Israel cross over as on dry ground. Entering the land they had so long anticipated receiving. This idea of crossing over central to John's description of the experience of those who entrust themselves to Jesus, especially in verses 1 through 4 of our passage. Look at verse 1. Then I, 
saw another great and awe-inspiring sign in heaven, seven angels with the seven last plagues, for with them God's wrath will be completed. For those who are following along and have interest in the structure or organization of the book of Revelation, this is the third cycle of judgment that's being described in the book of Revelation. You had first the seven seals, second the seven trumpets, and now the seven bowls of God's judgment to be poured out. In the first half of Revelation, it was the seals and the trumpets which were the focal point of that first half. There's not perfect balance here. So you got cycle one and cycle two are the first half of Revelation. Cycle three is really the second half of Revelation, but the bowls themselves are not a central feature. It's the characters that are addressed in the second half of Revelation, which are the major point of focus. What's important to observe here is that the fullness of God's wrath is to be poured out and is now brought to completion with the telling of this third cycle or series of judgments. Verse 2, the Bible says, I also saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had won the victory over the beast, his image and the number of his name were standing on the sea of glass with harps from God. The sea of glass imagery is drawn from the experience of the Israelites crossing first over the Red Sea and eventually through the waters of the Jordan and entering into that promised land. The sea is now subdued. It sits quiet. It sits still. In apocalyptic literature, the sea is representative of chaos. Even in Genesis 1 and 2, there are apocalyptic tones. There was confusion. There was disorder. And God enters into the creation and separates the day from the night, the waters from the earth. He is orchestrating order in the throes of chaos. The Apostle Paul tells us in the context of the life of the church that God is not the author of confusion, but of order. Even in cosmic acts of judgment, God is bringing order into the midst of chaos. These seas, this symbol of evil, this symbol of disorder has been subdued under the authority of our God, the saints of God, all who entrust their soul to Jesus enjoy this experience of crossing over. It may seem a bit of a stretch to draw a direct connection between the sea references of verse 2 to the experience of Israel crossing over the Red Sea or crossing over the Jordan in the book of Exodus. Perhaps on the basis of verse 2 alone, that would be correct. But verse 3 makes it abundantly clear that John intends to draw this direct connection between the experience of Israel crossing over the Jordan and the experience of Christians who on the last day will be brought to cross over under the lordship of Jesus. Verse 3 tells us that they sang the song of God's servant Moses and the song of the Lamb. We'll refer to the song as the song of the servant and the son. The song of Moses is a specific song found in the book of Deuteronomy chapter number 32. The end of Moses' life as his days were drawing to an end, he, he would meet with God. God would instruct Moses as to how he was to instruct the people of Israel in these his last days. In fact, Virtually all of Deuteronomy is about Moses' final instructions to the people of Israel. There are four sermons preached in four specific places, each place drawing closer and closer and closer to the place of crossing over. 
And in the last days of his life, he instructed Moses, God instructed Moses, that he would teach the people of Israel a song. Songs are memorable. You may not be aware of this, but perhaps the most important theologian on our pastoral staff is our worship pastor. No one sings the sermon in the days after we meet on the Lord's Day. You sing the songs. Even the preacher doesn't sing the sermon in the days after the message. I sing the songs. This week, I will sing of the great name of Jesus, how his works praise his name. I'll remind myself of the saving intervention of God through his son Jesus in the humming or quiet singing of the very songs that we sing in the assembly of the church this very day. So God says, Moses, you teach them this song so that even when they don't read the Bible, even when they don't remember the law of God, that this song will serve as a testimony against them in the day of their rebellion. Teach them the song. Teach them to sing of the one who brought them out of their Exodus experience. Teach them to sing the song of the one who met their every need in the wilderness. Teach them to sing the song of God's bringing them to cross over the Jordan. Teach them to sing the song of the one who made them as they are. Teach them to sing the song that even when they forget the law of God, they'll remember the goodness of the one who brought them out. The song was to teach them of the one who gave them the promised land, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The song was to teach them of the one to whom they would sing of and sing to in the promised land, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the song was to remind them of how they got to the promised land by the provision of our good and faithful God. So when John creates this mashup of the song of Moses and the song of Jesus, the Lamb, the only begotten of God. It's a song of preparation to teach us of how we are to sing in the land that flows with milk and honey. To teach us of the one to whom we are to sing in the land that flows with milk and honey. To remind us of how it is that we got to the land that flows with milk and honey. Song stands as a testament to the goodness and consistent faithfulness of God, to the glories that we'll be able to enjoy and share in when God brings us over. Isn't that good? There's some contrasts to be drawn between the song as it's described in Revelation 15 and the song of Moses in its original lyrics in Deuteronomy chapter 32. For instance, the song in Deuteronomy chapter 32 deals with the very strong probability that Israel is going to come to a place of rebellion and sin against God. You'll find no such reference in the song of the servant and the son. I say this with a measure of pride, and I'm willing to concede that. I have not yet reached that place in life where the breaking down of my body creates anxiousness for heaven. I hope to remain youthful in spirit, full of life and of vigor, 
for several more decades. But I have long since been at a place in my life of weariness with sin. I am glad to look forward to the promises of heaven, the glories it entails, the notion of waking up in that glad place without ever a thought of being tempted by sin, enticed to wander far from God. I will never wake up in heaven and wonder if I'm going to struggle with the same old sin on this day. You know, there are days you wake up and you just go back to the same thing again and again and again and again. And even if you're able to master it for a moment, there's always the weakness that comes with weariness. Temptation, it seems to overwhelm us when our body is not operating at its highest capacity. There's always this weakness. The spirit is ever willing, but the flesh is ever weak. Our experience in heaven is void of sin. I'm finding in preaching through the book of Revelation that more, more and more people have interest in heaven and what that experience is going to be like. A part, a part of that observation, just based in experience and conversation with many of you, I have come to the conclusion, and I'm convinced this is right, that not only are there many, many people who are afraid of death, a few less who are afraid of hell, there are scores of people who are, and this is true, who are scared to death of heaven, who have no idea of what heaven holds for us. They've either taken a faulty reading and understanding of the Bible, or they've neglected to read the Bible altogether. They maybe have taken an overly literal approach to certain passages, specifically in the book of Revelation. I would just remind you this morning of the basic arc of the Scripture. The Bible begins in the Garden of Eden. And there is sweet and tender fellowship. One of the most moving verses in all of the Bible is Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 8. That verse says that in the cool of the day, God came and walked in the midst of the garden. That's what's being restored, fellowship with God. You realize in the Garden of Eden, there is labor, there is work. We will work in heaven. The ark of the Bible is to restore what had been broken in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Taking us from the Garden of Eden, through the cross of Christ, by the power of his resurrection, now to the Garden of God. Reversing the curse of Adam, making right what had been so wrong, restoring unto us what had been broken. Your heavenly experience needn't be this tremendous mystery uh, Beyond your comprehension, God is redoing what had been undone by sin. And so I like to say to people when they ask, what is heaven going to be like? Well, it's going to be like here, except without sin, which fundamentally changes everything. I'm looking forward to waking up in heaven without a thought, without a temptation, with no inclination whatsoever towards sin. There's another point of contrast in the song as it's described here. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, the promises and the warnings of that song are exclusive to the nation of Israel. 
the boundaries of that song and its application have been set within the context of the people of Israel. Those boundaries have been broken in Revelation 15. The promises of the gospel, a gospel signed and sealed and delivered by the blood of Jesus, a new covenant established between God and those who would believe on Jesus for salvation knows no boundaries. People of every tribe and tongue and nation have a seat at the table of the Lamb. There is a place for you and there is a place for me by faith at the feet of our Savior Jesus in the garden of God on the last day. Aren't you glad for that? Here, what we have rehearsed for us are these attributes of God's character intended to stir our frail affections in the here and now. In anticipation of the fullness of glory we are to enjoy in the there and then. This is just a rehearsal of who God is, what God has done, how he continues to provide for our every need. Great and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name because you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you because your righteous acts have been revealed. This is who he is and this is what he does. I would encourage you on the Lord's day when we sing together, when we read the word of God together, when the word is preached over us in our gathering, in your discipleship groups, as you're holding one another accountable and considering the character of God, considering your lowly state before God, that you would find attributes of his character that are endearing to you in your particular season of life and meditate on them until you find your heart being stirred, your affections being moved into the very marrow of your bones. Stay there and think with depth on the goodness of our God and his son Jesus. That's where depth of worship is really found. He's described as great and awe-inspiring in his works. He is powerful. All across this room, there are people who are hurting, people who are suffering. There are people in this room with terminal diagnoses. There are people in this room who have buried in the last week, sister, a brother, parent. There are people in this room who are grieving a wayward child who is not only going astray, but has rejected the efforts of a mother and father to bring them back. Monday mornings, we gather together as pastors and as church staff. We pray for the very prayer request that you submit every Sunday. It's an extensive list. Here's what I want you to know. There's not a single prayer that you can offer, not a prayer request that you can make, that exceeds the ability of our God to meet. All over creation, there are those within animistic cultures and societies who go to the God of some tree, some mountain, some place, some city, some river, and they hope against hope that somehow that God has the ability to do for them what they so desperately need be done. Our God is a God of great power. There are no boundaries to his ability. This world, your experience, our lives are well beneath his feet. He is awe-inspiring in his works. 
the God of great omnipotence. He bears the power to bring remedy, whatever our need may be. He's righteous and true in his ways. He always does what is right. I, I think the longing of, of this generation is to see justice served. I think that's a fairly shared experience. I, I know, I know that sometimes you see things on TV and in your social media feed and you think those people have lost their mind. And they have. But there is, even still, although misinformed, misunderstood, and greatly distorted by the culture in which they live, a deep and abiding want to see justice served, to see equity among people, to see the little man be brought up, to see him treated with fairness alongside others, to see all people treated the same. I think that's a shared experience. God always does what's right by his people. No charge of favoritism or inequity could ever be brought against him in any reasonable way. He is a God of perfect righteousness. Do you know that I find myself incapable of doing the good things I want to do? There's, there are, there's nobody in this world that I love more than my wife and my three sons. And, and I, I want to be the best husband and father that I can be. I really want that. If you'd poll them, you'd find out that I'm not always the best husband and father that I want to be. Even, even where I have the strongest desire to do what is right, I don't often find within the weakness of my flesh the ability to do it. God knows no such limitations. He's righteous in his ways. He's the king of nations. He's described in verse 4 as worthy of all worship. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? He is deserving of our worship and our praise. It is a, a good thing, a noble thing, a well-placed emotion to feel a sense of compassion toward those who don't know Jesus, who are dead in their sins, spiraling downward and bounding toward hell, that there would be compassion on our part toward them. But it is just as, tra as tragic, just as unjust, that the praise of Jesus, who alone is worthy of all worship, is not on their mouth and in their heart. That's the great tragedy. That God is not worshipped by people of every tribe and tongue and nation. That the world as one. That there would be unanimity in our raising our voices to God who alone is worthy of all worship and praise. If we were to dig into the weeds of this song, there's, there's a touch of anti-imperial answering the propaganda of the day. What Caesar wanted was to bear real power. What Caesar wanted was to be observed as the bearer of all righteousness, true in his ways. What Caesar wanted was the worship of the nations. What Caesar had grasped to have for his own belongs to Christ, and he will not let it go. He alone is worthy of all worship and all praise. Before anything else, do you know why we gather this way on this day? 
because this memorializes the day of Christ's resurrection. Our assembling together is a note to self and society that Jesus alone is worthy of our full allegiance. He is worthy of our worship and our praise. He is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. The Bible tells us in the close of verse 4 that all the nations will come worship before him because his righteous acts have been revealed. He's the savior of the world. The trajectory of the Christian experience tends to be lost, dead in our sin, and God saves us. In the aftermath of that early Christian experience, our conversion, being raised from death to life, there's a great deal of gratitude, gladness of heart that God has forever changed us by the power of the gospel. And then over the course of time, we insulate ourselves from the deeds that so characterized our former life. Sometimes we insulate ourselves against the kind of people that were so much a part of our former life. We pray less like, but for the grace of God go I. More like the Pharisee who says, I'm so thankful I'm not like him or her. Dear brothers, I would just remind you at whatever point you may find yourself along that pharisaical trajectory that we have been saved by grace through faith. Anything that you have or enjoy is not the product of your winsomeness, your wisdom, your sterling intellect, your charisma, your smiling personality, or the size of your bank accounts. Anything that you and I enjoy is the product of God's grace and intervention in our experience. We ought to say of those we think to have lost their mind, but for the grace of God, go I. Jesus is the Savior of the world, even those who are far off. Now, verses 5 and 8 sort of chock full of a number of symbols and images that will be cited or referred to in what remains of the book of Revelation. So we're not going to treat them in great detail, but there is a single principle that's worthy of a little time and attention this morning. This is sort of the prelude to what comes in the remainder of the book. After this, I looked in the heavenly sanctuary, the tabernacle of testimony was open. Tabernacle of testimony the heavenly sanctuary, this is a symbolic reference to the Ark of the Covenant that bears the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are in the Ark of the Covenant. This is a veiled or apocalyptic way of saying that the Word of God, the law of God, is the standard by which mankind is to be judged. Verse 6, out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with seven plagues, dressed in clean, bright linen, with gold sashes wrapped around their chest. They're dressed like the Son of Man with a white robe and a gold kingly priestly sash. They come dressed like the Son of Man because they are representatives of the Son of Man. Verse 7. One of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven gold bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Remember, this is the beginning of that section of Revelation where God's wrath is brought to completion. The fullness of his wrath is poured out. Verse 8, then the sanctuary was filled with smoke from God's glory and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. What's being described here 
is the moments in time leading up to God moving in this great act of judgment. This is such a monumental moment in human history that the sanctuary shuts down. This is a moment of such significance, it's described as a moment where the sanctuary was filled with smoke. That language itself has a tendency in biblical history to speak of God preparing to or God actively moving in some monumental or significant way. The best example, the best known example is Isaiah 6, where the Bible says that Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up the train of his robe, filling the temple, and smoke filled the room. In my sanctified imagination, I envision an engine revving up, and the exhaust of that engine begins to fill the atmosphere. atmosphere. Smoke fills the sanctuary. God's engine is revving, and he is preparing to move in this monumental way, in in a way of great significance. God is on the move, and in the case of Revelation 15, he is on the on the move in judgment. I was listening to another preacher preach Revelation 15, which was kind of an interesting experience. Uh, you know, if you, you can be encouraged when you hear someone preach. I made the comment when listening to this brother preach, this sounds like he's reading my notes. And then I did that thing that you should never do. And I read the comments on the sermon, and I wish I hadn't made that observation. He suggested in that sermon that if we weren't so conditioned to, to violence, grotesque violence in movies and television shows, that, that we would really be stunned at the grotesque nature of judgment as it's depicted in Revelation 15 and following. I tend to agree with that. There's a severity about the judgment of God as it's described in these closing chapters of Revelation. Now, you can be put off by that, or you can see it for what it is. It is the answer that atheists and pagan philosophers have been pleading for for thousands of years. You want a solution to the problem of evil? You know what I mean when I say the problem of evil? More sophisticated arguments against the existence of God or even the message of the gospel is to say that if God is so good, how do we account for all these bad things that are happening in the world. This final act of judgment is God answering the problem of evil. God does not involve himself in mindless philosophical conjecture, unpackaging in philosophical ways the existence or presence of evil. There is no such conversation in the Bible. Rather than engaging in this kind of mindless psychobabble, he just moves to do something about it. In other words, rather than standing in the corner and observing the mess and discussing the various ways it might be cleaned up, he just grabs a mop and goes to work. God is resolving the problem of evil's presence, the presence of suffering in our experience and the world around us in vindicating the righteousness of his people and his good justice in this last and sweeping act of judgment against the world. God moves in great severity against sin. God is moving in judgment. Heaven and earth literally move for the judgment of sin. He's moving to vindicate his people. It's striking to me, and this may not bear itself out in every passage, but it seems that there is at least until this point in the book of Revelation, 
The point being made that God does not work in judgment vindictively. Rather, he works in judgment to vindicate his people. To verify as right your decision to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Just this week, had a conversation with a brother, and this is what he said. And you can bear witness with this. Every believer here can. He said, Pastor, it just feels like the harder I try to walk with Jesus, the more difficult it is. The frustrating thing about the experience I find myself in is that I'm really trying to walk with Jesus. And the harder I try, the more opposition there is for me. And there really is in this life, the shared Christian experience, the more you try to walk with eyes of faith in the footsteps of that man from Galilee, the more difficult every step along the way seems to be. Now multiply that, amplify that exponentially in the framework of the the saints of Asia Minor in the first century were being persecuted or dying for their faith was a real and present danger. Don't you know it felt all the more like their efforts to walk with Jesus were only being met with opposition. When Jesus moves in judgment on the last day, it is the yes and amen to every spirit-filled, faith-filled believer's decision to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, no matter how difficult or dark the days may seem for you. It's the yes and amen of God. It's the well done, thy good and faithful servant. You were sane and right-headed when you chose to follow Jesus and break with the things of this world. God is moving here to vindicate his people, to say to those who may feel at certain moments of their life that God is far off in spite of the fact that they're laboring to walk with him. It's a way of God saying by prophecy, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's not just for the great commission, but every day of your life. He's moving in the judgment of sin. He's moving in the vindication of his people, and at least by implication, He moves heaven and earth for the salvation of his people. Judgment and salvation, salvation and judgment always come simultaneously. Look from Genesis to Revelation. God moves in judgment against some. Out of necessity, it means salvation for others. God moves in salvation for some. Out of necessity, it means judgment for others. The word of God is a two-edged sword. Even as Jesus is featured in the inaugural vision of Revelation, the word of his mouth is a two-edged sword. The message of the gospel is a double-edged sword. That message that meant salvation for so many of you will mean judgment for those who would spurn the promise of Jesus. The gospel is a two-edged sword. Where salvation comes, judgment out of necessity comes. God has moved heaven and earth in order to bring to pass your experience of salvation. God has literally moved heaven and earth in that Jesus Christ, God's only begotten son, has laid aside the glories of heaven, clothed himself in flesh, walked in our midst in absolute righteousness, bore our sin on Calvary's cross, been raised again on the third day, 
seated at the right hand of God, and he beckons that we would come to him. But that's not where the work stops. Jesus is actively interceding for the people of God, and this after, actively orchestrating the events of our life to be softened to the teaching of the gospel, that we might repent of our sin and believe on Christ for our salvation. God is actively moving heaven and earth to bring you to faith in Jesus and to rescue your soul from hell. Some of you are here today, the direct product, and you're connecting in your mind now the dots between God's sovereign providence in your life and your very presence in this room. God moves heaven and earth to bring salvation and judgment to pass. It's interesting to me the way certain things are brought from the biblical language into the English and how that can frame the way we think about things. For instance, we're about to embark on the bowl section of Revelation. That word bowl in certain Old Testament passages. There are Greek translations of the Old Testament and there are Greek commentary notes on the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. Greek is the language of the New Testament. In those, in those Greek texts of the Old Testament and in a specific commentary on a passage in Isaiah, the same word that's rendered bowl in Revelation is translated as cup. Now, I'm not advocating for cup over bowl or bowl over cup. I'm just noting that there's some interest here on my part in the way our reading of these passages might be different if we just use that little different word. For instance, when I hear cup, I think of something much different than bowl. In fact, it evokes in my mind a thought of the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. What we're about to read in the chapters that follow, Lord willing, is the telling of the wrath of God being poured out. The prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was, Lord, if there be a way this bitter cup might pass from me, let it be. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is describing there what he'll experience on the cross in the drinking of the bitter cup of God's wrath against our sin. Jesus on the cross drinks the cup of God's wrath against us in order that by faith in him, we don't have to, have to come under the pouring out of the bitter cup of God's wrath in the end. All of humanity, vicariously or by themselves, will come under the outpouring of this cup of God's wrath. You may, by faith today, Take Jesus as your substitute under the wrath of God. Or you may spurn the promise of the gospel and bear it alone. At the cross, Jesus, perfect in righteousness, became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. He drank the cup so you and I wouldn't have to endure it. Today, you must turn away from your sin. And all have sinned. You have all sinned against the holy God. You must turn away from your sin. 
And you must believe on Jesus as your substitute, as the one who would drink the cup in your stead, if you are to avoid the very fate described in the chapters which are to come. This is not a wrath you are equipped to withstand. Run to Jesus. Find your hiding place in the body and behind the blood of the Lamb. This is not a vindictive God who takes great delight in the destruction of the wicked, but one who gladly takes the heavy burden of our sin upon himself that we might know the easy yoke of a gentle and lowly Savior. Come to him. Come, come, come. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for its truth, in these moments to give consideration to your great grace toward us. God, I pray that you would convict of sin, that you would grant boldness, courage, and conviction as we respond to the preaching of your word. I pray that you would renew the spirits of your church, that you would revive us yet again. Help us, Lord, to dismiss moments from now with fire in our bones, seeking those who need to know the truth. God, I pray for those who are on the fence. Help them to hear the strong invitation of the Savior. There are but two ways to go, a broad way that leads to death and destruction and a narrow gate that leads to life. God, rid them of baggage by the work of your Holy Spirit and invite them, compel them to come irresistibly to the narrow way. God, I pray that you would stir our affections for your son, Jesus. Help us to think with depth on your goodness and all that you've done through your son, Christ. Help us to relish the promises of the gospel. Move among us in great might. You are righteous. You are holy. Your ways are right. Save us of our sin. In Jesus' name, amen.